I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The reality is with a major surgical repair, it's just such a long recovery time. And it's just not. Sometimes they're like, you know, doctors will say, you know, you're 30 now. And, you know, if you have a major fracture, um, you know, there's a reality that maybe it's time to stop walking like and that's wow that's a reality and you know two years ago i broke my leg it's um it was a four-month healing time now there's a reality i'm probably going to break my leg again at some point uh that sucks um but it's true and there's probably a reality at 40 maybe or 50 i just probably won't walk again there's no big intro jeremy so just we're already recording cool that's all right. <laughs> You're a school teacher. Yep. I mean, we've been talking about over the last couple of months, there's this big conversation about climate change and, and the kids taking uh, time off school. And there's, you know, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, there's, you know, there's pros and there's cons. So there's people on the right who are saying, listen, they should be back in school and this is not okay. And everyone on the left saying this is great and wonderful. Do you see that in the classroom? Do you see people having this sort of... Um, this need, this, uh, this, this want to go out there and fight for activism or become an activist? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think information's it's most accessible than it's ever been. So I think kids know more than they've ever known. Like all you have to do is put something in the Google or Wikipedia and you know something comes up. And I think kids by nature are very curious. So I think um, you know the more that they learn from the more opinions that they kind of are able to collect. Yeah, I think there is probably a bit of a build there behind that idea of activism around different kind of causes. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I see that, you know, obviously that is the big thing. This is the information overdrive. But there's so much of a difference between left-leaning news publications and right-leaning news publications. Like they can have the same story and yet come to two very different conclusions. And that, it, not even like climate change aside, that is concerning for youth going forward. Do you ever hear things in the classroom that you think to yourself, okay, this is, you know, you're wrong there, but you can't really say it because perhaps it goes against, I'm not asking you to identify mm -hmm. them, you know, particularly, I don't want you to lose your job, uh, but is there things that you hear that people, is the general consensus amongst young people, but you know to yourself that, okay, you don't have the facts there, but you can't really you know, announce that you're incorrect. Oh, yeah, I think it's tricky. I think like if you, you reference something like climate change, I think there are a lot of opinions out there. So who's to say that my opinions are wrong or right? Um, but look, in terms of classroom, look, I'm sure, you know, kids that I teach and, you know, just generally always have their own opinions, but I'll always support, you know, their beliefs because at the end of the day, that's my job for them to kind of go on their own journey and make their own decisions. Um, you know, I, I won't, for something so broad like climate change where there are all these opinions, I won't say that they're right or wrong. It's, you know, it's about them getting their facts and their ideas and coming to their own conclusions. And my job is to try and facilitate that. So, um, you know, like in terms of general study, I don't look at anything specific, but yeah, look, I want them to come to their own conclusions and make their own decisions. I think, I think people like in schools, there should be a, a direction from people like you or, or teachers in general to really, uh, you know, weigh up either side. 
to find counteracting views because there is so much out there that you know is from an, another side people have a uh, have a have a thought have a belief have a direction that they have to run in whether they're a news publication or they're a print media or whatever they have to have that thought they have to have that agenda if you will you need to be able to weigh up either side and that's what i've been doing with this whole climate change thing because as you said like most people don't know what they're talking about like 99% of people when it comes to climate change don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're not scientists and they have an opinion. And that's, you know, I guess that's the same with anything. That's damaging to people. But is there a push from teachers to really weigh up different opinions on either side? Or is it just like, you know, you go to Google, you get that one piece of information, you don't even look at where they got their information and you just run with that? It's probably half me to comment because I probably don't, you know, something like climate change is more in the science kind of sure. field. So, and that's not my area of teaching. I'm an English teacher. So, um, look, I think that, you know, like if I'm being completely objective, you know, we, we teach the curriculum and I think some of those conversations probably fall sometimes outside, you know, the curriculum. And, you know, obviously the older the kids you kind of teach, they're probably the ones who are a little bit more kind of... Um, engaged by that information about discovering their world and those kinds of things and kind of what's happening. So, um, you know, I can speak, you know, personally for myself, probably not. Look, I'd look to stay, you know, within that curriculum and then outside of that, you know, any decisions that kids want to make up, I obviously let them um, be quite objective in their own views and let them do that research. And I don't certainly push one way or the other. So as an English teacher, hmm. how do you mark creative writing? Because that's bullshit. <laughs> I come up with some great shit back in the day. There was dragons, there was fire, it was fantastic, and then some other dickhead down the way was writing some terrible story and they get full marks and I get nothing. Oh, I think um, you've got to look to the criteria. So it's certainly, <laughs> that's, it's, it's certainly... That's not an answer. No, sure it is. No, it depends how well it's written and the language that you use and stuff. So it's a it's a whole um, it's a whole range. So with like everything, mate, we don't mark everything on on one kind of idea. You know, a great idea is one part of a story, but there's grammar, there's punctuation, there's flow. There's oh, my grammar's terrible. Uh, my yeah. spelling's terrible. Well, that's going to be a bit of an issue, isn't it? It so. is an issue. But <laughs> in saying that, it's like the whole thing with the th. Uh, E-R-E, apostrophe R-E, or the there and the there and all that type of stuff. You know what I'm trying to say, all right? Does it matter? Uh, well, yes, it does. <laughs> uh, because I, I, I guess that's what my subject is. Like, you know, like I teach a subject where communication is key and not just written but spoken. And um, the reality is with that, um, you know, if, if I can't help teach that skill, then what am I doing? Do you ever send a text message to someone and they are arguing or something like that and they hit you back with the asterisks and the correct spelling. Oh, I do that. So um, is that the worst comeback known to humankind? I only do it to people that I know that it'll annoy. So <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I won't do that to anyone else. No, look, I think um, you know it's a bit like everything. You've got to respect what people's skill sets would be like me. You know, building a building a wall now. You know, my you know, me correcting them might be them correcting me on how to drive a nail into the wall or something like that. So yeah. I kind of take with ebbs and flows. What? Yeah, I, I I think it's just a terrible way to... to, to uh, I, I get a lot on Twitter because I just throw tweets out there. I don't think about them. I just throw them out there, which is probably detrimental to my career. But <laughs> I just throw them out there and people come back with the apostrophe T-H-E, apostrophe R-E, and it's just like, fuck you, mate. Yeah, no, I, I, get, I get what you mean. I try not to offend too many people, so... Um, oh, offend them, who cares? Yeah, it's no, all good. I don't know, like, you know, it's like, you know, amongst friends, I'm sure if I get a message, it'll be completely fine as long as I'm going to understand the meeting. But in a formal setting, in a school, I, um, yeah, I have to mark it correctly. What do you think of the youth coming forward? There's a lot of talk about uh, kids uh, in, in, in 2019, 2020, 
around this time period struggling with mental illnesses. There, there's a lot more. There's an increase in uh, the, uh, the taking of medications. There's a lot more people seeking treatment. Uh, do you see that on a day-to-day basis, or is this something that teachers are aware of? I'll probably, I probably won't comment on in terms of a school setting, but probably I coach a lot of youth sport. Okay. Um, and you know, probably from that setting. Um, I don't know. Um, I think, um, you know, just from the sporting side of things, I've obviously been involved in sport quite a bit, but um, I think people have never been so, uh, have never identified um, their internal, I don't say struggles, but I don't think they've ever identified themselves internally so well that they ever have. Like, once again, that information um, is so it's so accessible and I think that um, people are now given a chance to think through things that maybe in the past might have been brushed over, you know, with, you know, comments like, you know, harden up or things like that. Mm. And I think now that, you know, people maybe feel a lot more supported to come out and speak. So I don't know whether issues or, you know, mental health is something that is is more prevalent. I just think that maybe people are happier to kind of, you know, self-assess and maybe self-access possibly as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, like labelling something often gives you power to speak about it but it also can perhaps give it power over you you know you don't want to have something that uh something that's wrong with you or something that is an issue with you define who you are like i i have a form of epilepsy and if i let that sort of run my life then it can you know it can affect Mm. it can affect me in a detrimental way i can have you know if if i'm thinking about it while i'm on stage doing stand-up then I can become anxious and worried about that happening on on that sort of thing. It's 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 a worry for people. You know, they have all these problems in their own head, and then they go to school and they don't know what sort of what's going on. And it's the same in the workplace. Like, there's no sort of outlet. There's no sort of uh, group that's in place to help people. And we you know we won't talk about school too much. I know you can't comment on it too much being a being that that being your job. You don't want to lose it. But like, what do people do? Are they are they too involved in their own minds? Do you think? Do they think that there's too much information on the internet? There's too many people. There's there's the bullying that happens in 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 the school, and then it happens at home. Is there too much going on for kids? I um, I don't know. Like, it's it's something that um, you know, like you asked me before whether I think it's become more prevalent, and I kind of identified that sporting kind of culture. Yeah. Um, I've been involved in sport, you know, for a decade. I, I Like I said, I think it just comes back to the fact that more I think people may be just speaking up about it more. But also in my mind, I've never kind of gone through that struggle. So um, I, I don't know. Like, because it, it, I've never identified, um, you know, as probably being, you know, having a mental health illness, I don't. It's really hard to comment because someone once said to me that, you know, you live in a, you know, or if you go through that, it must be one world and then obviously not going through it like, and, and I never scoff at it or anything like that, but I, I just, you know, like it's a real unknown for me. It'd be like me being seven foot tall. Like, I just don't know what it would be like. So yeah. therefore, um, it's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I would imagine. Um, but, Door frames and uh, not your friend though. I, I just, um, I just think, yeah, people are just kind of identifying it a little bit more within themselves and um, maybe speaking up. And, you know, you said before, you know, does it take, you know, power of them? I think everything is a little bit of willpower, but, it, you know, having having any type of illness, like it's always going to be a bit of a battle regardless if it's physical or mental. 
um, trying to kind of um, put yourself in a mindset that's going to be able to carry you forward. So, yeah, I, I really I don't want to be offensive. I really just don't have an answer. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, and if and I've lived on either side. I've had the problems with anxiety, and I had the years where I was fine. You know, uh, and, and it is. It's a very different world that you sort of. It's like getting into a pool when it's too cold. You just slowly find your way mm. in there. It's a very weird sort of realm. But you know, we all have issues, whether they be physical, whether they be mental, and it's all about sort of accepting them and just overcoming them. And that's what you've done your whole life. Could you give people a bit of a background on on yourself uh, and your your physical struggle through? Uh, growing up and, and, and how you sort of found a way to sort of just capitalise on that and become a successful sportsman? Oh, I think, um, yeah, so I was born with um, osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a um, rare bone disorder. It's similar to osteoporosis. Um, makes my bones kind of brittle. Um, and, yeah, so just growing up, I was just a little bit more susceptible to fractures. How, um, does, that, how does it work with the brittleness? Is it, is it the density of the bones? Yeah, so it's kind of the it's it's a deficiency in collagen in the bone, okay. um, and it kind of it makes them brittle, but it also makes them a little bit flexible. So the bones can bow, I guess, in a way. Mm. Um, yeah, so the density is is kind of not there, and um, yeah, just making them more prone to fracture. So I kind of um, you're born with it. It's um, you know for me it was genetic mutation. Mum and dad don't have it, um, and then. Yeah, um, kind of growing up, had a lot of preventative surgery, um, you know, rotting, etc., to try and strengthen those bones when I was quite young. And um, yeah, look, I've been quite lucky. Like I can walk. Like a lot of people with what I have don't walk at all. And wow. uh, and I think a lot of people, you know, I probably I didn't realise, but you know, particularly as, a, as an adult, God, walking's a really empowering thing. It's not the end of the world, but for me, you know, like one of the things people say, "What's your favourite hobby?" I'm like, I love walking um, mm. because it's. It keeps me fit and it keeps me healthy. And I know if I'm walking, I know that I'm kind of, um, you know, being able to do things and it's it's massive for me, so. Yeah. So take me through the rotting scenario. Like what is the process involved? Obviously you're a kid, mm. but uh, is that to stop, the, that's just to reinforce like sort mm. of like steel and concrete mm. yeah. sort of thing? Steel and concrete kind of scenario. So yeah, the bone will kind of go down or the um the rod will go down the eye of the bone. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that, through the bone. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And then if they... If, if there is a fracture, um, which it can still occur, um, what will happen is it'll just keep that bone aligned essentially. So it's a bit of like, it, it'll strengthen the bone, but it also means that if that bone fractures, that it won't be misaligned or we won't have a compound right. fracture kind of scenario. So, and it means also the healing time's a lot better and it's just a, it's just a preventative measure, I guess. That's what they did to Wolverine. I'm not aware, but like I'll take, but I'll take that. So that's all right. So I'll, I'll take that on board. Yeah. Look, I, I guess so. And I've got with my legs, um, they've got the 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 shin or the the tib and the and the femurs are both rotted. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that's the way. I've actually been a couple of them as well, just through fractures, through force and stuff. And they don't even they don't even take them out. Like they're just once they're bent. Like just imagine trying to take a bent screw out of a wall. It's nearly impossible. No, so no, they no, just no. keep it in there and they just go, don't do it again. How do you go through airports? Security. Yeah, it doesn't beep. Um, I used to say that it did, but it never does. Like, really? That's interesting. No, no, just maybe it's a different type of metal. Like, they're titanium, yeah, okay, so yeah. um, I don't really know. But yeah, never beep through an That's airport. That's a shame. Uh, yeah, it is. It would have been nice, <laughs> but um, I did request it, but they said no. So um, I guess my body's you know, well-being was a lot better than being able to beep through an airport. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Although it is a good conversation start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A few people have brought it up. You know, like I remember when I was a kid and stuff, people, particularly, you know, being primary school, you know, do you beep through an airport and stuff? And then, uh, yeah, I do. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing, you know. I'm like, well, they just let me go through, so they can't take the rod out, so it's <laughs> it's fine. 
<laughs> I know that, the, I mean, the human body is quite resilient. And one of the things I train in uh, mixed martial arts and the kicking uh, bags and, and throwing kicks is is very important part of that sport. And you see a lot of people sort of, um, they work on their shins. So they create uh, scar tissue, which calcifies, and that becomes, you know, a stronger bone. So you can you can see like there's this footage of, uh, of a young girl, and we'll play it now over this video, but of a young girl who can kick this tree and she kicks she doesn't just kick trees she mm. kicks like metal poles she kicks wooden poles she kicks concrete pylons and she kicks them as hard as she can she's got these strong as fuck shins it's insane now that is a process that people would have the vast majority of people would have do does your body allow you to do that to recover to that point or is that a part of the collagen as well to repair itself and then make a bone stronger if it fractures yeah, no. Um, as I've got older, uh, probably when I was younger, like when you kind of go through puberty, your bones tend to harden. That's when my bones hardened to the to the most point, or okay. to the to the hardest point. And then you know, like I've, I've as an adult, I've only ever broken I've broken a finger. That's like an occupational hazard, so we won't count that. But like I've broken um, a leg. Uh, okay. I've broken my leg twice, and I only broke my leg like two years ago. Um, I slipped over, and then um, it was nearly four months before I healed. Like when I was a oh, kid, wow. it was like three weeks and yeah, wow. up again and yeah it was three weeks yeah it was just like it was just most kids would heal three or four weeks Fagum. yeah oh, wow. um and then yeah i just kept going back hasn't healed hasn't healed hasn't yeah. healed i was like oh that's that's quite annoying so, yeah <laughs> that's quite annoying yeah i wasn't i'm you know i'm 30 now and i thought oh god just imagine when i'm 30 if i'd have done this it would have been 12 months so it's interesting like you're 30 you don't have many wrinkles i think you're not looking hard <laughs> <laughs> but you, you think someone who Lacks in collagen mm. in the bones. Like, I don't know mm. the processes. But you would think that in the skin, collagen also exists and increases elasticity. I think, I think yeah, I'm, I think that's more genetic. I think mum and dad have got really good skin and I think okay. that I've probably just inherited it. Like, I think I'm one of six kids and I think I'm the only one who's got, have all, who has olive skin. Okay. And dad has olive skin, so I think I've just kind of got the, the right yeah. side of the gene pool there. But um, maybe I was lucky because I ended up with the wrong side on in another way, yeah. having a little bone. So maybe it was a little bit of a reward for, you know, a little bit of bad luck. <laughs> yeah, so, you get olive skin. Yeah. Oh, mate, I'm I'm the whitest person in my family. It's hilarious. Everyone else is nice and olive, and I've just got the whitest skin known to man. I burn. If you've like high beam me in your car, I will burn. It's terrible. Oh, we all we all burn. Like trust me. Um, <laughs> I just um yeah, like I'm white everywhere else, and just got you know I've got that you know kind of um you know driver's arm kind of thing, and yeah, so yeah. But um, no, my skin. I'm pretty lucky that I haven't had any issues with that. So I guess that's a little win. So with uh with growing up. And sport, what sport did you naturally sort of uh, move to? I started playing tennis okay. um, when I was about 13 or 14. And, um, yeah, I think mum was pretty keen for me to play. Mum mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> used to play tennis, and I think it looked like a sport that wasn't um, too physical. Um, played it, um, had a really bad rotator cuff injury, which is completely independent of brittle bones. That was just bad luck more an overuse sort it of thing fell out of my chair actually um <laughs> and kind of um just kind of landed on it a bit funny and i just kept playing and never got it repaired and just got worse and worse and you know being young i was like it'll be fine um yeah and just continuously hurt it created a lot of scar tissue um but obviously being i'm a melbourneian um you know afl um i didn't play afl but you know like i would have traded everything to play afl like i would have for one game it would have meant the world but um you know i was competitive I was pretty good at tennis. Like I was 
doing pretty well with it. And um, yeah, rotator cuff injury certainly didn't help that. Then I was 18, I moved to to wheelchair basketball, um, couldn't play AFL. So I was an adult, mum and dad had kind of said, you know, you make your own decisions now, a bit more physical, um, played it and yeah, loved it. Um, so I've seen wheelchair rugby and they collide quite a bit. Is there is as much collision in wheelchair wheelchair basketball? Because obviously with the brittle bones, like if you've got someone flying into your into your legs, because your legs would sit like that. Am I correct? Yeah, no, I've been, no, not as not as not as brutal. Um, wheelchair rugby is a sport designed for people who are classified as quadriplegic. So, yeah. um, and it, it's um, you you might be a quadruple amputee, you might um, yeah. have some kind of a spinal cord injury. But yeah, it's a little bit more physical because because of that, it's a little bit less um, ball orientated in terms of the fine motor skills, but a lot more physical. Whereas basketball is probably a little bit more fine motor skill with the ball and. Um, more finesse moving the wheelchair opposed to being as physical, I would say. But it still has its hits and, you know, bumps and bruises and stuff. Yeah, I bet. How long does it take you to sort of master the wheelchair? My, my brother uses the wheelchair. He's autistic. And to get him out of the house, he's just like, he's just like I'm not going. Oh. <laughs> so he, he he doesn't use it himself. But I know that they. I've tried to use his. And it is it is a skill like any other remote of transport. I think... Um, because I'd always kind of used a wheelchair when I was a kid. Um, like, although I can walk um, long distance and stuff, I'd use a wheelchair. If I had a broken leg, I'd use a wheelchair. So, look, you know, when I jumped in, it wasn't... And I'd play wheelchair tennis. So that part was pretty quick, I would say. Um, you know, like I probably was the part I could do. Probably the shooting and the passing part was a lot harder to kind of master for me. Moving the chair was never an issue for me. So I was able to kind of always do it. Mm. I guess if you brought up... With that as your mode of transport, you just sort of nail it. Yeah, like I remember, um, you know, I went to school in a place called Broadmeadows, and um, which is um, in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, and we used to live in Pasco Bar, which was about, I don't know, eight kilometres, seven kilometres, something like that. <coughs> and um, I remember mum used to give me um, train money at the start of the week, which is 30 or 40 bucks. Now, as a 14-year-old, that's awesome. Um, mm. So I used to say, well, I'm going to push there and... Um, to and from school, even though it was seven k's each, each way, because uh, I could save forty bucks. And then, you know, when I was fifteen, that was awesome. Sixteen, and um, so you know, I used to have to jump stuff in me in me day chair, and like I used to, I think that's probably where I got it from. That idea of me wanting to be a little bit tight with money, and I thought oh, I'll just learn how to use this wheelchair and jump up gutters and stuff. And um, yeah, look, it certainly came in handy later down the line. You know, not just saving money, but also my chair skills got a lot better as well. What type of fitness does that build up in your arms? I don't know. Um, I, I look, I always was pretty lean. So I guess that, you know, I kind of always thought that I was, you know, I always got kind of good fitness from it. It's probably not sport fitness, but it was probably just, you know, I never really sweat or anything like that. And I never usually have to exert too much energy. So, you know, I felt like when I was in a wheelchair, when I was 15 or 16, I could push all day. Like it was yeah. never, you know, I always felt that I could probably do 20 or 30K and not really be that impeded. I never did it, but I always felt that fitness was never really an issue. I know a mate of mine, Kurt Fernley, who is just the most ridiculous athlete that has ever existed. Like you see him, like along Newcastle, you'll see him just in his chair flying. Someone's on a bike next to him trying to keep up with him and he's just flying along, crawling the Kokoda Trail. Like he's just an incredible human being. And you've got to think that that dude has just got so much you know, just fitness or, or so much fast twitch muscle fibres in, in, in his arms. He can do amazing things. He can do everything that people's legs do uh, with these massive, you know, massive muscle fibres, these massive systems that are built into your legs, but he does them with his arms. Like, that's just an incredible feat. Yeah, he's a, he's just 
an unbelievable athlete. Like he's probably one of Australia's most celebrated and you know most successful athletes. Yeah, what he can do is, is amazing, and I think the difference is with him that he can do that at speed for a sustained period of time. Like he is. Kurt's on another level. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think he climbed Kokoda and he just did things that I couldn't even imagine like doing. So, yeah, like I, I think, you know, um, his fitness is just unbelievable. And, you know, you look at him, there's just not an ounce of fat on him and no. he's just an absolute athlete. And, and one of the nicest people I've ever met. And he is one of these people who is, you know, as you said, rewarded and he is uh, sought after with media and stuff like that. But he, he should be one of these people that they talk about footballers they talk about AFL players being you know people who kids look up to you know Kurt Fernley should be that pe- that person that people are putting out of the media because not only he's been dealt a card in life that is different to other people but he has grabbed that with both hands and made it his journey in life to be the best or, or make the best life out of what these cards he's been dealt and, and the way that he does that is just incredible, and, and it's a, and it's a lesson to everybody, regardless of if your 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 issues in life are physical, mental, whatever, that you can just grab it and run with it. I love that he puts the athlete first with that. Like I know that, um, yeah. Like I, that's probably one thing. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm friends with um, Dylan Alcott, and um, I know that he's got his um, company that you know advocates for um, access within the workplace and stuff. And him and I have had some good conversations about it over the time, but. Um, I love how he puts the athlete first. Like, and I, I absolutely agree that he's an absolute inspiration. I think to the general public, but to me, he's just an inspiration as an athlete, just mm. because physically his feats he's been able to accomplish. And I think, um, you know, like it's funny. I think we're getting, you know, we're moving closer. I think that the, you know, in public, I think talking, or you know, the general public talking about, you know, the reason why he's inspired. Like, I think it's natural that he's inspiring because of the things that he's overcome and his disability. But I think that. Um, you know, as time kind of goes on and we're kind of, you know, moving into a different, you know, paradox around, you know, what we expect socially and how we kind of view the world that um, his athletic prowess is all is now starting to come to the forefront of what he, you know, to me, like I'd compare him to someone, you know, or, you know, of the greatest athletes, that, you know, in athletics, well, probably the mm. greatest athlete that we've ever had in that sport, regardless if you can walk or not. So, I mean, I'm glad that the world is starting to kind of see those kinds of things. Absolutely. And he, and he deserves it. And I think that this is a generational thing. You know, we come through and we don't really care that he's, well, obviously, it's weird to say this, but we don't care he's in a wheelchair. But back in the day, people would be like, oh, okay, you know, we need to treat him nice. Mm-hmm. People just treat him like you would treat anyone else. And Absolutely. That's something I talk about in, in my stand-up is with, with my brother, like I treat him like anybody else. Yeah. I think that's an important thing that, that most people can do, and particularly with people who are like Kurt, which is just like, he doesn't care, he just does his thing. You know, he's just the best at his sport. He doesn't see himself as someone with a disability. He just does it. You know, I think um, I think back to when I was growing up, particularly in high school. Um, you know, like there are a number. I'm, I'm kind of writing a short story collection about all these um, all these things that kind of happened to me in high school. I've got this best friend, and his name's Jared, and he um, you know, he's six foot, and he's got red hair, and he just, you know, like we're kind of a bit like not twins out, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, but similar because <laughs> I'm really short and he's really tall and we look very different and, and whatever. And um, and all these things he kind of used to do to me in high school. And if anyone ever read them, they'd be just absolutely horrified. And um, and I think those things and those experiences that, you know, we kind of go f- through, I think for someone like me really um, made me strong. Like I remember we house shared once and these this is one of the stories and 
Um, and the things he used to do, like he used to put things up really high and I used to look up high. There used to be a note saying, oh, I didn't put it in this high spot and stuff. And I remember a, a story about where I shaved the back of the dog one day and I put some dog hair on his bed and um, he had really bad hay fever the morning of the um, of the English exam and stuff. And we used to do things like this to one another. And I think that kind of resilience he built in me to go, you know, I don't know whether he realised at the time that those little tests, you know, I'm going to treat you normally and this is how someone will treat one of their friends. Yeah. And, you know, like it's very easy for me to go, oh, I'm short and I'm offended. But um, those kinds of experiences to me were so important. And in high school and, you know, the little play fights we used to get in, I used to come home with a, oh, mum, I've got a broken rib, I'm sorry, how'd you do it? Um, you know, I don't want to say, but really we got into a play fight with sticks and, mm. you know, I hit him in the knee and hit me in the rib and we both limped home together. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, you know, that pain was definitely worth it physically because I thought, you know what, this is kind of what it was about. Boys will be boys. And if I'm going to say, hey, mum, I've got brittle bones, he broke my rib and then guess what? You know, I'm, you know, like it's it's not a friendship anymore because I feel like the thing is that, you know, I've tried to use my disability to try and say, yep, um, I wanted to be in that situation where I wanted to play and you know, part of one of those risks is I'm going to get hurt. And I took that risk. You know, I had a sore rib for a few days, but I had a lot of fun hurting him too. So yeah. it was fine. Well, no one wants pity. No, no one absolutely. wants to live their life with people looking and they're looking down mm. upon you if, if you're being if someone's being pity, pitiful mm. I mean but the thing is what you just said there boys will be boys now that's that's a statement that people think that you just shouldn't say at all anymore and I'm sure as a teacher you know you're not allowed to say mm. that at all uh, but I think it, it, as far as like play fighting mm. and, and being rough and all that type of stuff like girls do it as well but I think it's a very uh, young masculine thing to do and you see it in the wild with different animals they just go at each other and this is what young boys do I did it you did it's just something that for some reason two young men will just try and th- we used to have rock fights mm. I'd throw rocks at each other like how fucking stupid is that like I think um, my best mate broke he's broken four of my bones out of however, however many and look oh, you're right with the boys will be boys I think that phrase kind of changing but you know you and I are probably not dissimilar in age and I probably look at that and go well okay um, you know in the early 2000s yes that was completely acceptable maybe not um, now, but like, I, I think it's acceptable. <laughs> it's all good. I, I, I just think, you know, like it, it's some things are kind of never, um, you know, you'll, you'll kind of never stop, you know, like it, it's like you can just about guarantee if you have kids that one of them will come home with a broken, um, falling off the monkey bars at some mm. point in their life and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, like I don't want that to, um, you know, like to me, that's how I kind of viewed it. And, you know, the fact that to me, it's kind of an empowering statement. Boys will be boys. I could be one of the boys. And that was important to me. Because it meant that, you know, like even though I came home, you know, like what did he do? He rolled the gym mat over me. Um, he, he, what, else, what else did he do? He's hit me with a golf cart. We've done all kinds of stupid stuff to one another. And I've hurt him too, so I don't think that I'm the victim here. But, um, you know, you kind of look at it. And unfortunately, the golf cart incident happened when we were young adults. But, um, you know, like, but you look at it and go, boys will be boys. And, you know, I never complained about it. Otherwise, I'd never speak to him again. We still speak every day on the phone. So I didn't take it personally. I just took it as a, wow, we did really dumb stuff when we were younger. It's a weird, like, arrangement that young dudes have, or even mm. older guys, mm. where they just take the piss out of each other. Mm. They hurt each other, particularly when they're younger, mm. and they treat each other like they hate each other. Mm. But that's best mates. Yeah, I can't explain. It's endearing, isn't it? Like, you know, that I think that, um, I think, you know, males, you know, well, I can speak from my generation. I think my friendship group, we were just risk takers. And, mm. you know, the risks I could generally take because I had brittle bones were not as, you know, they probably weren't as cool. So, like, I sometimes knew, well, you know what, I'm probably going to break a bone tripping over anyway, so let's do something a little bit dangerous and let's break it. And then I've got like, at least a good story. At least you've got story. a story, yeah. <laughs> at least I've got a story to kind of go along with it and stuff. And, you know, like, I'd 
some of those stories when I was younger, like, you know, I've got so many and, you know, they, they never affected me mentally. I don't have any scars or anything from I look back and like, oh, wow, we were really dumb then. And, um, you know, physically I've healed as well. So, you know, you know, let bygones be bygones and we'll just talk about it over a beer. Mm, absolutely. Do you, do you, do you see many young people with your condition, with your, with your, with your issues with the, with the brittle bones? Do you, do you ever see those people? Do you ever come across those people? Do you, are you able to give them some guidance or? Yeah, I'll look, I obviously meet people who have brittle bones, um, not super regularly, but yeah, regularly enough. And um, yeah, it it's hard. Like I think you're a product of, I think you're a product of your environment a little bit. Like I'd love to tell people with brittle bones, hey, go on, go and play wheelchair basketball. You're probably going to break a bone. Mm. Um, and I know it's funny because I'll watch someone else break a bone and I just about can't handle it like it's just it, it's really bad for me to watch whereas if i broke my own bone i'm like yeah it's fine like it'll it'll kind of heal um i think more so probably the parents opposed to the to the kids that if you've got brittle bones like you know there's a reality that um you're gonna you're gonna break a bone and you know sometimes you're better to learn the hard way um or you're better to learn about what you, you like if my mum had have wrapped me up in cotton wool when i was a kid which she didn't like there is footage of my brother putting me on the back of one of those little trolleys and i'm falling out and i get back up sometimes sometimes i don't and i let out a scream and you know but at least we learned what i can and can't do um i've got a story for you that um, i was coaching a football game outside um just around the corner here and um, this woman, I was coaching and, and with brittle bones, you sometimes have these features, like if you can walk, you're quite short and you walk a bit like a penguin like I kind of do. And, um, and this lady, she held these two boys in her arms and she said to me, oh, you know, you've got brittle bones, you've got osteogenesis. I said, yeah, I do. And, and these, I coach women's footy side and they're all kind of looking around and, and, they, and she said, I haven't really spoken to many people about this and, you know, what do you think these boys, and she's holding these two boys here and she's holding them in her arms and, and, and stuff and, you know, they're crawling around and doing whatever and, you know, and through that conversation we talked about these things that I kind of did and, you know, we've been able to connect. So, um, you know, but the advice I kind of gave to her was you've got two of them, which is much harder than what my mum had, but um, they're going to break bones. Let them do what you think, you know, don't let them jump out of planes, but if you think there's something they want to do i know that the mental scarring will be a lot worse from not letting them do it whereas the bone will heal physically from kind of letting them do it and if that's the way it is then that's the way that it is when you when you break a bone mm. is, is is it as painful as someone breaking a bone with a with a uh, normal structure of a bone is it exactly the same or is it i, I mean I, obviously hard to say yes it's the same pain level but is there I, a difference there i think hurts um i think particularly what bone you break like i think breaking a femur which is the worst bone in the body to break um i'd say yes i'd say it's probably just as painful um you know you can't move with a broken femur it's a broken hip yep um essentially so yes i would say i'll probably just manage the pain a little bit better like i know what to do so broken femur i'm probably on the ground don't move me um, when I break a bone, I'm a bit of a control freak, so I don't want anyone to touch me. Um, and I'll just wait for the ambulance to get there, and they'll take me off, and off we go. Um, for a finger, playing basketball, just tape it back up, and I'll get it reset in a couple of days once the tournament's over. And you know, I've had a couple of fingers that I've broken um, that have been so badly out of place that they're like, you should have come back in. And the same nurse tells me off when I go back in and say, "Yep, you're an idiot." And I'll say, yep. "Yeah, but it'll get fixed at some point." So it's like everything. No more gaps fixes everything, doesn't it? Well, like, your fingers are all straight. I've seen a lot of footballers or mm. cricket players with a finger out mm. here and a finger up here. It's 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 it's, it's obviously you're treating these oh, these breaks. That one's not as good. But, yeah, um, that's a bit. Fun, yeah, that one. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Look, I think um, I have to thank mum. Like, really, mum and dad, like, they put me through surgery. They always made sure that when I was younger, um, I got that surgery or I, I always looked after it. As I've got better, <clears throat> as I've got older, they've said, you know, you have to make your own decisions. But, you know, the reality is with a major surgical repair, it's just such a long recovery time mm. and it's just not... Sometimes they're like, you know, doctors will say, you know, you're 30 now and, you know, if you have a major fracture, um, you know, there's a reality that maybe it's time to stop walking. Like, and that's wow. that's a reality. And, you know, two years ago I broke my leg. It's um, It was a four-month healing time. Now there's a reality. I'm probably going to break my leg again at some point. Uh, that sucks. Um, but it's true. And there's probably a reality at 40 maybe or 50. I just probably won't walk again. And it might just be the effort too. Like, if I see that I've got an 18-month recovery time to get up and walk, to get up and walk and maybe instantly break it again, you know, I'd probably much rather just, you know, put time into getting my upper body fit and just being bloody good at pushing a wheelchair. Yeah. Is this degenerative? Does this get worse as you get older? I'm not. Not really. Like, it's not life-threatening and it's not... Like my, my bones are going to deteriorate, yes. I'd say, at some point, but probably similar rate, maybe, to osteoporosis. Well, that's how I said in my mind. Like, you know, if I keep my upper body fit, I should be fine. And, um, you know, thankfully, access around the world is getting a lot better. So um, I've got a normal life expectancy and yeah. stuff like that. So I expect to live to, you know, well, if I keep hanging around with my friends, I won't live a very long life. A couple, but, a couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks <laughs> left. But, um, yeah, look, I you know, have a normal life expectancy. And mm, so cool. I won't get too bad that I can't not ever function. Mm. When you were growing up, did you have, uh, I know that there's now with wheelchairs and people who require them, there's the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Did you have anything like that when you were a young man? Um, look, mainly fundraising. I think um, mum and, you know, local schools, etc. were just awesome. So probably fundraising. Um, I can't remember whether mum or dad paid for my wheelchairs, but, you know, look. They're expensive yeah, too. Yeah, they were about five or 6,000. Like my parents are, you know, good middle class people. So I'm sure that, you know, having a $6,000 bill dropping on their doorstep was not ideal. Um, but I don't, in terms of like actual funding from the government, not yeah, a little bit. I think in Victoria, you're eligible for a wheelchair every few years. Okay. Um, you know, like, but my current wheelchair, I've got a wheelchair that sits in the, my back shed at the moment because I obviously don't use it very often. And I got that when I was in year 12. Now, thankfully, I haven't grown very much since I was in year 12. And um, and that just sits there. So that's 13 years old. So um, I think in my life, I've only had three everyday wheelchairs, so about one every 10 years, basically. Mm. Mm. I mean, this is something I've spoken about with, with several people who who would have accessed it if the uh, NDIS was available. But it is so important that that scheme is ensured funding for the foreseeable future because there are so many people, and not necessarily you, but people who are like, they will need that scheme mm. for the remainder of their lives. For, not only just for them, but for their parents. Uh, mm. We were talking about my brother before. His, uh, his autism is severe, he can't talk. He can't uh, do a lot of things for himself. And, you know, my mum's been his main carer his entire life. He's 23 or 22 mm. now, 23. And, uh, you know, he, I think it's his birthday today, actually. He, um, you know, he needs a lot of help. Mm. And, and parents need a lot of help. And the fact that people talk about actually cutting that funding is fucking horrendous. Yeah, look, I'm not super outspoken about it, but I honestly believe it must be really tough in life to to start, you know, whether you're trying to get a job or whether you're just trying to get into school and you've got a $40,000 deficit you have to cover in terms of services and access and equipment. Yeah. That sucks. And, you know, for most, you know, like the greater majority of people are, are middle class and or, or less or, you know, <clears throat> um, particularly if you've got a child who has a 
disability, then, you know, there are associated costs. And yeah, it sucks that you you need access to these things just to be, and I don't want to say a functioning member of society, but just to be an independent member of society, that absolutely sucks. And um, it's disappointing to hear that that's the case um, in terms of the NDIS funding. I would I'd honestly say, like I said, I've been incredibly fortunate that I haven't needed anything, but to watch a lot of people um, in the street, you know, just, just around and you can see their wheelchairs are declining or they could definitely use that person to support them or, you know, they could definitely use that piece of equipment. Um, it, it's a bloody tough existence and it must make people, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, but it must make people just feel miserable knowing that there's something they want to do over there that they can't access it because we can't get our stuff sorted out over here. And it, it's, you know, people call it a huge, it's a huge cost. Well, it's not really a cost at all. It's a, it, it, it's a huge commitment that just should be made. Like it's just like every other commitment, you know, that we make from a you know, taxation purpose, like healthcare or, or education. <clears throat> um, you know, they say one in four, one in five people have some form of disability. Now, not every person within that statistic will need NDIS, but um, we have to make that happen. Like we're a rich country. We're a very rich country and we're a, a country that's full of resources. And, um, you know, we talk about some of these surpluses and some of these deficits and, and debts we have. We just have to make it work. And it's, to me, I saw Dylan Alcott's tweet the other day about it and he just echoed the word so brilliantly. It has to happen and that's it. Mm. That's it. You, you, there's, there's no arguing with it. Mm. You need to commit this amount of money, if not more, to helping the people who need it the most. Mm. You know, there's this cash and people are getting bonuses here and mm. there, you know, to direct that funding where it needs to be. Even where we are now, mm. we're filming this in Brisbane and walking the streets this morning, you know, we're not necessarily talking about people with physical disabilities or, or, or del uh, mentally delayed or whatever. You know, we're talking about people with mental health issues. The people we see on the street here, just people laying down, like watching people walk to work. Like, how is there not enough funding for those people to get a warm bed and something to eat. Like I know there's homeless shelters mm. and there's all that type of stuff, but to see that in a city with so much wealth and so many people walking around in $1,000 suits and driving around in $200,000 cars. Like we saw a homeless person this morning with a dog and he was uh, right next to a car at the lights that was worth $300,000 or $400,000. And you think that's such a disparity. Like why isn't there people trying to help? Like why do people not care about the little guy? I, I don't know. I think um, I think with disability, I think a lot of disability is not seen, or um, or maybe there's a bit of a misconception that funding's readily available. You know, oh, you know, you know I, I think a lot of people they're not connected with it directly. Even though we say the statistic is so high, but then I kind of followed on before and said, you know, not everyone within that statistic, you know, may need that funding. Um, I, I just think that you know, with this kind of social change and in this movement forward, with you know, people recognising freedom of information that kind of exists and people can access things, will I feel they'll get better. Like I'm, I'm not trying <coughs> to be a fence sitter again. I know. I think about like even when I was young and even maybe even before when I was young, how far we've come um, in terms of, you know, disability and, and stuff, you know, you know, pre-70s and stuff, people institutionalised for having a disability. Yeah. And so even though that, that's a horrible thing and I, and I agree with that, 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 that's just an awful thing, but we've come a long way. Like, so I, I have a lot of faith that it will get restored um, because in you know, 40 years we've travelled quite a long way and I know in another 30 or 40, I know that this will be the norm. We just have to make it happen a little bit quicker here. But I'm also, I'm one of those people with a disability that I respect that um, and I'm proud to have a disability, but I respect that change 
can take time. I just don't like when it takes time in terms of people just, you know, kind of just holding up the line because of a financial issue. Just mm. make it happen. Like usually social change is the thing that takes the longest. It shouldn't be the other way around. So. Even a bureaucratic issue. Like, oh, we needed this person to sign off of this. Like for the NDIS funding, mm. for example, it takes months to access funding and there's 90 pages of paperwork. Like it is a mess the mm. way they have to sort it out. And like my brother to access his funding, he has to go to a particular meeting and prove that he's disabled. It's like, like what are you, what are you doing? Like why are you trying to bring these people and, and, and show that, okay, this guy can't uh, do the normal, the normal thing in society? Like, what, how can't this be more streamlined? How, can't people, how can people access it, like, quicker? Like, it's just, it feels like we need to be more active about it still, even though it is so much better than when, when you were a kid or even in the 70s when there were uh, disabled people. And, you know, you go back and it just gets worse and progressively worse yeah. as you get on. Even people with epilepsy back in the, the, the early days of settlement here in Australia and before that, they were locked in cages. They thought they were um, being... Um, a, what's the word? Possessed mm. by the devil, and uh, actually, funny one with when you did that, when you were possessed by the devil because you had epilepsy, you mm. were locked in a cage. Now this would stop the evil spirits because your body would stop running off carbohydrates and start running off fat, and it would stop the epilepsy. Anyway, it's a completely different story, but um, it comes from that point to now a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, mm. and to where we are today. But still, I think we need to be vocal about it. Mm to keep it moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I, you know, like it's, I'm, you know, I'm very conservative, like I, in terms of, of those kinds of things. And, and I, like I have all these personal beliefs, you know, like I, I have an undergrad in health science. So like well, my whole degree was about, you know, preventative health and, you know, a lot of that argument, you know, kind of stems about, you know, what, what what's kind of best for now. I know that I don't access it, like personally. Yeah. Um, you know, two reasons. Um, the first reason you said the process is too murky. Can't I just can't be bothered with it. Mm. Like, and the second reason is if I'm eligible for X amount, whatever that might be. Same reason why I don't advocate for a um, disability permit. I know I'm eligible for one. I choose not to because I know that that next person can have it. But you know, the real reality is, I probably should apply for it because I know by applying for it, I'll in- create a bigger window of more people who will apply for it, therefore increasing the supply and demand. So like it's it's, it's a bit of a tough one for me, yeah. but you know, from a personal point of view, I don't apply for it because I know that maybe um, it's not going to help. But I think moving it forward, I think, yeah, like some of those leaders like Dylan and, and others and, and, and people who are very um, notable in, in disability circles and in that space, yeah, definitely pushing it, I think it's really, really big. And um, It'll get up. Like I know it will at some point. Mm. It's just, um, you know, it's just not moving as quickly. You know, this promise has now been for years, and what well, we'll say years, but three to four years. I can remember. Um, it, this promise has been up and many years planning. So, yeah, it's certainly taking its sweet old time. And uh, hopefully, when when young children are diagnosed with an issue, that, that in the future people can just go right. This is the funding you can access. This is how you're going to do it. You go here, 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 and it's done. You know, the last thing you need when that happens with a child is you know, paperwork and, and lines and waiting and you don't know the phone number to ring. There's no phone number. You're on hold. You don't need that shit. You just need a real streamlined process. Exactly. But anyway, um, with, with, with wheelchair uh, basketball, where did that take you from there? Um, yeah, so I started as a player. Um, you just played Victoria, just under 18s kind of stuff. And yeah, look, I was probably, 
I probably physically, I was always, I always thought I probably wasn't going to get there. Like I was, I'm even in a wheelchair, I'm quite small, and um, I had, you know, I was pretty quick and you know, mobile and stuff. Um, played in the National League in the NWBL, which is the uh, affiliate of the NBL um, in Victoria um, for four years, and just was a solid player. Um, but all being young and a solid player is also handy because, you know, you can be seen as a bit of a and someone who's on the rise. Mm. Um, you know, made some kind of national squads, never really made a team. Um, spent some time in America, um, in Illinois, um, you know, training over there as well. So it kind of took me to America, it took me all around Australia. Um, then moved up here, got a job up here actually. I'm um, not, not as a teacher, but uh, um, got a job up here and um, with my first undergrad degree and played up here and um, really enjoyed my time up here as a player. That was in 2012. Um, and just at the end of the year, my body just said no more. Um, yeah, it, it just said no. Um, you know, I was just, you know, I just, shoulders were sore, my back was sore, my hips were sore um, all the time. Um, so decided to give it away. Um, I love AFL more than anything. All I wanted to do was was kind of play. Couldn't do that. That wasn't an option. Um, started coaching kids um, with physical disabilities. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, probably didn't realise at the time that I'd probably enjoy becoming... I wasn't a teacher at that point, so it was kind of a bit of a segue to that. And um, coached the Brisbane National League side up here. And yeah, we're a side that kind of had, had you know, pretty average success. Um, always been around the mark, but never, you know, never really were a perennial finals contender. And that first year we got to the championship game and that was a big deal for us. Um, beat Perth in Perth and... No one beats Perth and Perth in any sport ever. Um, won in overtime, and that was huge. Lost the final, but um, got a great, um, great buzz out of that. You know, in front of you know thousand screaming Perth people, and you know they're ruthless supporters. They are relentless. Um, then Ben Etridge, who was the Australian Rollers coach at the time, had said, you know, we'll, we're looking for someone to come on board. Took me to a tournament in Japan. <coughs> got to a tournament in Dubai. Got to a tournament in. In England, and he said, "You know, the Paralympics are rolling around next year, and we we want someone in this position. Um, if you'd like it, and it, of course I'd like mm. that. And um, work were just so supportive; they, they were yeah, fantastic. They just said absolutely whatever you need, and um, off I went. And we went to Rio in 2016. Wow! And, um, came back and gave it away, and started coaching AFL. <laughs> Why'd you give it away? Oh, I think." Um, so 20, 2008, I started. Uh, oh, look, it'd been, you know, near a decade. Um, all I ever wanted to do was coach AFL, um, but kind of got good at basketball. So, like, it, I think my talent probably led me further than my passion. And then at the end of it, I thought, you know, the campaign's over. Um, it was a club that, you know, I got in contact with the president of the club and I just said, look, I was probably more interested <coughs> in coaching local footy um, and having a beer on a Thursday night and just relaxing opposed to, you know, like the, you know, the travel, which was... Overseas, a lot of it, um, really enjoying, you know, obviously teach up, really enjoying work. Um, didn't want to give that time up. Like I wanted to spend more time at work and, um, yeah, and just it was a square peg round hole and, you know, footy come up and, yeah, I took that kind of avenue. I guess sometimes in life you just you just have to make those decisions and you've got a family too. Uh, well, I kind of do. I've got a I've got a partner and I've got a dog and a cat. So it's a family. Man. That's <laughs> and, important. Uh, 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 yeah. Look, I, I think that too. Look, I probably you know that the elf in the room. You know, Bianca's really you know she was always really supportive, and I think um, she plays um, local netball, and I, I like the local sporting scene. Like you know, it's great to go overseas and spend time in you know places like Leicester and you know Dubai and Brazil and all these wonderful places. But um, what's Dubai like? Um, 
yeah, I liked it. It's hot. <laughs> oh, no, I did. Look, I liked it. It was, it was very hot. Um, it was just a bit... Um, yeah, look, it was a wonderful tournament. Um, they put on a wheelchair basketball tournament there every year, and um, it, it's sponsored by... Um, the son of um, one of the one of the sheikhs, and it, it's just an awesome tournament. They just do everything for you, and um, wow. you know we got to the Burj Khalifa, and we got all these. It's just everything's like here, but just like much bigger. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a cool place. They, yeah, they talk about the heat. Like people will start work at three in the morning rather than starting mm. at six a.m. Mm. because it gets so hot, so they can finish at like eleven, and that's their day done. The UFC was there recently, and they said it was like thirty-two degrees at Caveside. Oh, I know that. When we first got there, I remember staying in a hotel. And like it's, you know, traveling for sport, you know, whatever. It's it's a big experience. Um, you know, like everyone's really excited. But we got out, we got um, into the hotel. And it's really important to acclimatize. And when you've got a spinal cord injury, um, usually below your spinal cord injury, um, you you obviously don't have feeling, um, and your body temp can do kind of all funny things like so you can become sick actually because you might have a fever and not realize and whatever and i remember i was out there with the team manager and we kind of walked out and it was like it was about 47 degrees when we kind of we'd been in an aircon car got into the lobby hadn't really felt the heat at all and then we walked out and it was like just someone getting a blowtorch and smacking you in the face wow it was so hot and we would have walked three or four minutes we said let's go back it was just too hot and that was the hottest day we were there of course for the whole tournament but you know obviously our perception was oh it's going to be like this and you know we got to the basketball stadium and you said it was 32 degrees courtside i reckon it was 40 inside that basketball stadium um and you know we're just like guys have cold showers and whatever and yeah. you know so every if you don't have an air con you don't survive in dubai how does someone who can't you know regulate their own temperature or feel it how do they keep it in check um I don't really know. I, I guess, like, the, the, I, don't, I don't know if they keep it in check necessarily. I think they identify whether they're sick, um, you know, and essentially without being an expert in this field. But I know that if you have an injury lower than what you can feel, your body is going to have some kind of reaction. And whether or not that your body might be overheating and not realising, you know, just making sure that you're in cold water or maybe, you know, icing off or whatever. Sure. Um, you know, just checking your body to make sure that you don't have a cut or a nick or something like that. Because if you've got a cut or a nick and it becomes infected and you don't realise, then that's going to still travel, but you're not going to physically feel that infection. So you've just got to make sure that, you know, you don't cut yourself and you're regularly checking yourself. Yeah. It, it must be a, a whole different, um, a whole different life trying to, but I guess you know a lot of people mm. are obviously born with it. But I mean, I look at people like Alex McKinnon, who was the rugby league player mm. who, uh, in a tackle, landed on his neck, and um, who played for Newcastle. And and you know I've met Alex a couple of times, but he he, he is now obviously uh, moving forward with his life, and he's, he's been married, and and I'm pretty sure they had a kid as well, which is just fantastic. Mm. And but to, to, I can't imagine you know dealing with that news. Are a lot of people. Uh, in that position that you've met, not not necessarily quadriplegic, but the people who were, you know, playing in these basketball teams, where a lot of these people, how do they deal with these this 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 tragedy? People would see it as, but this part in their life that takes it on a whole new direction. Oh, like it's inspiring. Well, that that's the kind of thing that kind of inspires me. People who can kind of go from having a severe injury to, or you know, going from living quite a normal life and then, um, you know having something happen like um alex and you know, i was always born with my disability so i don't know it was normal for me but um i guess that you know i see a lot of people come into sport or i see a lot of people coming to basketball you know more often not falling off a motorbike or car accident or you know some kind of you know accident of some kind um i think it's amazing how well and how resilient 
people are. Mm. Um, I think when you're, you know, you've got the, you're in the face of adversity, it's amazing what the human body and the mind can kind of accomplish. I think a lot of people I find came to basketball as it became an outlet as a way of saying, yep, yeah, let's get back into sport, particularly people who are looking for that next outlet while they're recovering or while, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out what they're, they're going to do next. And um, I just think that they just, you know, build resilience. I don't, I, I think, you know, the social movement's been really important because I think not having a disability, kind of what I was talking about before, that, um, you know, that we've come so far in terms of disability. I think disability is so normalised now. And, it, and in, a, in a disability is still unique, but I think people now, it's not even people say, oh, disability is accept, accepted. I think it's more than that. I think disability is just part of fabric. It's just a fabric kind of thing. So I think people now have a lot, um, not less of an issue, but I think <coughs> they can deal with it better because I think it's just like, yep, okay, you're in a wheelchair. So basically the only thing you can't, you know, perhaps do is maybe walk, but, you know, there's access and stuff. I'm sure, you know, you know, not just access, but there's opportunities and they are opportunities to play sport at the highest level like a Paralympics too, um, you know, to work in, in, you know, modern day workplaces. You know, there are doctors in wheelchairs, there are tradesmen in wheelchairs. You know, it's not... It's not a big deal. Like it's just, you know, obviously those scars that people are going to have to endure are going to, you know, like, and that's probably more purely, I think, from the trauma that they've kind of gone through. But I think that, um, you know, people just do such a great job in moving on with their lives. And it's just, it's amazing. Like, oh, you know, they get in chairs and they become great at sport. They become great at life. They become great at everything. And it's just part of the fabric. I guess whatever happens to you in life, you can always overcome it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't think there's anything, you know, that you can't overcome. Like I said, like I, my what I have is so small on the spectrum. Like, I'm just short, like, to me. And, look, obviously, I've got a greater risk of breaking bones. But with the exception of playing football, there's not too many things in the world that I can't not do. So, if, you know, like, it's... And the same with other people. Like, if you just can't... You know, if walking's the one thing that maybe you can't do and or whatever, and, um, you know, and this is very general. It's a quite a big generalisation. But, um, you know, we're not going too bad, I don't think, really. No, I mean, there's people... The US president was in a wheelchair like, mm. at one point. You know, and people can obviously just... Particularly now with all these things that are open for people with disabilities and people who are born differently or become different mm. over time, they can really just find their own piece of the world and run with that. Mm. And I think that's just so important. And that's what you've done. You know, as you said, your main thing is that you're short and your bones are brittle, but you've overcome that. You've found a way to travel the world and coach teams and play in sports that, you know, people would probably, you know, other families might have said, no, no, come on, mate, you need to just stay at home and just wrap you up in cotton wool, as you said. And I think that's a credit to not only yourself for, you know, just taking things on, but your family as well. Obviously, they've played a, such an important role in your life. And do you ever look back at that and just say, thank, you know, thank God that, they didn't wrap me up in cotton wood and they let me out into the world. I think it's, yeah, like I think it's like a sliding doors kind of thing. Like I think mum and dad, they've been married, you know, you know for near on, I don't want to say 40 years, but it's in their 30s. And um, dad always worked away a lot. And I think he was, you know, I've got one of those dads. He's a great guy, but he's really, um, he's, he's, he's that old school, hard-nosed dad. Like, you know, he, 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 he you know, he's... He was he was the hard nosed in terms of like you know setting really good standards, but he was the one who would always be the most scared. Like if I'd fall over and break a bone, he'd be like, "What was that there? And why was this yeah. there?" And 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 I'd probably look at him and go, you know, him working away. He's he did a great thing by supporting our family, you know, because so it meant mum could mind us. And I think what that allowed mum to do was to go, "I'll embrace that, you know, risk." 
and if he breaks, I can I can handle that. And then it was just a phone call. The dad then obviously being so far away, you know, like I, he would handle it, I'm sure, in his own way. But yeah, look, my grandparents and stuff, like, you know, I, I know that, you know, they, they, they just played such a great role. Mum, I'm going to go play basketball. Um, yeah, we support you if you break. Here's my, here's my number. Give us a call, and you know, and you know, and oh, how often I used to just hide broken bones because as I got older, I wanted to protect their peace and sanctity. But I think when they knew that I was limping around, I think they kind of knew that I kind of hurt myself a little bit as well. I think I think a good way to end this podcast would perhaps to address um, someone who is sitting at home listening to this that perhaps feels like they've been uh, shortchanged, so to speak, with life. What, what advice would you offer someone who in their lives has either been born with something or, as you said, you know, all you wanted to do was play AFL, but you couldn't do that. That was that one thing. You'd give up anything for that. Oh, I think um, I just don't... Uh, you can kind of have whatever you want, I feel. like, um, And I know that, you know, you have to be realistic in the goals that you kind of set. But um, I, I think there's enough information, there's enough opportunity in the world that if you, if you want to go do something... Um, you can go and do it. I know that, you know, when you have a disability, you know, it's things like, you know, those rates of unemployment are really high. And I know, like, I know those things. I've studied that and I know that it it sucks. But, you know, we have unbelievable opportunities to go get an education. You've just kind of, you know, if you can apply the willpower you have with kind of overcoming what you've got every day, just apply that willpower to go getting an education. Go apply that willpower to something else and it'll be fine because you've already demonstrated it once. So go do it again and it's absolutely fine. And that's, that, that's what it is for me. And obviously I know that we talked about mental health and I haven't had to kind of go through any issues around mental health. But um, yeah, like I said, if you can apply it once, you can apply it again and it can be done. And um, I don't see myself as inspiration to see some, myself as someone who every day just wanted to kind of go do what I could do. And, and, and that was it. Like, you know, I don't set lofty goals. I just set the goals that I want and that's how I go about it. Legend, thank you so much no for joining us. I really appreciate that. No On the Butterfield Effect. Oh, we nailed again, ladies and gentlemen. Listen, make sure you head to the iTunes store right now. Give us a five-star rating because let's face it, we deserve it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> also, don't forget, I'm on tour at the moment. Make sure you check out down below for tickets. And we'll be back next week with another fantastic episode. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate that. Anything else, Connor? Clips Channel, the Butterfield Effect Clips Show. It's an amazing clip show. You'll see shorter versions of this. They're cut up into little sections. They're like an entree before the main meal. You can get stuck into those. Sink your teeth in, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, peace to the Middle East, bigger motherfucker, and big sticks. And uh, I'll see you all very soon. Toodaloo, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.